Good morning. I'm not Caleb. I don't pretend to be Caleb. Um, my beard is coming in. It won't be as big as his till tomorrow. But, but seriously, he's a little under the weather, so he asked me to cover for him today. And he sends his uh, well wishes, and he's asked for your prayer, and that he hopes to be with us on Wednesday this week for our Thanksgiving Eve service. So if we can please keep in in our prayers. So this morning, seeing the young people leading worship, it really touches my heart, and it brings me back to um, many years ago where after teaching orchestra all day, I would stop in to various um, church members' homes and teach their children instruments. I taught violin, guitar, bass, and I actually taught Luke Amorelli drums for a little bit, and you could tell now he doesn't need my help anymore. In fact, he's criticizing me when I'm playing next to him on bass. So I did that, and one, one day, it was in October, I think Heidi was, um, well, she couldn't have been pregnant with Logan, but uh, he may have just been born, and I was teaching a lesson, and this sweet young boy asked me, he said, oh, when Logan uh, grows up and becomes a little older, are you going to take him trick-or-treating, or is he going to be a Christian? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to your word today, that we will enjoy ourselves, that we can laugh at things that may be funny, but also that we may be convicted. I pray that we would um, lay our assumptions and our traditions at the door, and I pray that you would open our hearts to what your word says to us. I pray if anything that I've written or say is not in accordance with your will, that uh, the people would quickly forget it or that I would not say it. I pray, although if it is in line with your word and your will, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear, to believe, and to apply. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First John 4, 19, 21 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And when one of the Pharisees, a certain lawyer, asked Jesus, which is the great commandment, he answered, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then Jesus added, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, he's saying the entire Old Testament scripture depends on, hangs on, hinges on love for God and Love for neighbor, not love for God and hatred to neighbor, not love for God and indifference toward neighbor, not love for God and avoiding our neighbor, but love for God and love for neighbor. Now, have you ever wondered why when Jesus was asked what the single great commandment is, he replies with two commandments? Well, because he knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows we need to hear this. Jesus gave his disciples and us a new commandment, love one another. In fact, he tells them to love each other the way that he loved them. And we all know how that was. John 15, verses 13 and 14 says, Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, how are they to know if they're Jesus' friends? Well, if, he, if they do what he commands them. And what does he command them? To love one another, even to the point of laying down their lives for one another. And that's extreme. So how will, people, how will all people know that we are his disciples? Well, by agreeing on every point of doctrine? No. By living a solitary life of poverty and asceticism? No. By starting a revolution and overthrowing the government? Calm down, no. If we have love for one another? Yes. Now the Apostle John tells us that we cannot love God if we don't first love our brother. And if we say we love God and we don't love our brother, he calls us liars. So you see, our vertical love for God must be made manifest in our horizontal love for one another, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, most importantly. Now, Christians and non-Christians alike are all familiar with the great love chapter. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's read at every wedding, including my own, although if you came to my wedding, I made them start in chapter 12 to set the context. Because although it speaks of love, it's really talking to the church on how to behave in church services. And it's dealing with spiritual gifts, not weddings. But that's why in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, if you speak in tongues, but don't love, you're just noise. He also says in verse 2, if you have prophetic powers and you understand all mysteries, you have all knowledge, but have all faith, but don't have any love, you're nothing. Then he even says, if you give all of your stuff away and you die a martyr's death without love, you gain nothing. You know the rest. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. You see, love was extremely important to the Apostle Paul. So listen to what he also writes to his letter in the, his letter to the Philippian church regarding two women in the church. He says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, he writes also, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So what does Paul tell them to do? To agree, to love one another, to stop fighting, to just love one another. But... Getting along with people can be difficult sometimes, am I right? At work, in the home, at school with those darn teachers, the supermarket, the baseball game, the movies on the LIE. I have to say this, as I was driving down the block from the church, I almost ran into Franny, I'm sorry, Rocky. She was getting off of the uh, parkway and I was like, uh-oh, and I sped up and I didn't realize it was her. So it's hard to get along on the road. Thank goodness we're okay. And where were we coming? To the church. It's also difficult to get along with people in the church. Am I right? You know, sometimes I feel like being a monk would be spectacular if it wasn't selfish, unbiblical, and anti-Christian in every sense of the word. But sometimes I daydream. If I could just find a Reformed Baptistic Calvinistic monastery, take my scrolls, write on my parchment with my quill, my private cell, I'd study, I'd meditate, I'd pray, I'd light some candles take some selfies of me in my robe and post it on Facebook and say, look at how holy I am. But that's not the biblical way. That's not the gospel way. 
true when we're saying we're called out of the world, but we're called into this community of faith. And the community of faith is based upon love for and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this community that then re-enters the world, that invades the world, and fulfills the Great Commission. But we do it together. Together we serve the risen Christ. Together we strengthen each other. We encourage each other. We admonish each other. We forgive each other. We prefer each other. And most of all, we love each other. Love, love, love. So in that brief introduction, Lord willing, I've established at least some biblical mandate for loving one another. And obviously, there are many, many forms this, that this can take. It could take the form of hospitality, supplying physical needs, the meal train that we have for people, praying for each other, praying for Caleb when he's sick, mourning with each other when we lose a loved one, rejoicing with each other, encouraging each other, and yes, even admonishing each other when someone is in sin or error. But being that our time is limited this morning, we'll draw our attention to one single aspect of loving one another. So please, in your Bibles or on your phones, please turn to Romans chapter 14. And as you're turning there, please listen to this quote from the 17th century Puritan theologian Matthew Henry, as I believe it will prepare our hearts for what's to follow. He writes, liberty in things indifferent, condescension to those that are weak and tender, Zeal in the great things of God wherein we are all agreed. These are the things that make for peace. So this morning, in addition to Romans 14, we're also going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 8. And Lord willing, uh, those verses will be on the screen for you. But if you can keep your finger in Romans 14, because we're going to be going through a lot of the verses in that chapter, it would really help us this morning. So in these two passages... Paul addresses very similar issues that are going on in the church in Rome and also in the church in Corinth. It's my hope that looking at what was going on in those two congregations all those years ago will give us some mighty 21st century applications. And with God's enabling grace, we might be able to implement them right here and now at Levittown Baptist Church. So in your Bibles, look at Romans 14, verse 1. And as, as Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. You see, the church at Rome and the church at Corinth were mixtures of two different types of people. We have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, converts from Judaism and converts from paganism. And what they had in those two congregations was a conflict, a collision of two worlds. But it's not the collision that you think it is. It wasn't Jew versus Gentile, although that was the case in some other congregations. No, in these two places, it was actually Jew versus Jew and Gentile versus Gentile. See, brothers and sisters, the conflict Paul is addressing goes as follows. Look at verse 2 in Romans 14. He says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's the Gentile's main issue this morning. Now, oftentimes, when we consider a weak believer, we assume it is only because they easily give into temptation, right? If someone's weak, they give into temptation. In other words, they do not abstain from an activity. But in this case, it's the exact opposite. When we discover that it's people that are refraining from eating meat that are the weak brothers. So keep that in mind. That's the Gentile's main issue. If you look down in verse 5, 
in Romans 14, you'll see the other issue. Paul writes, one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And that mainly is the Jews' issue. So we have two issues. Verse 2, the Gentile conflict, and in verse 5, the Jewish conflict. So let's go back to verse 2 and examine the Gentile con con conflict first. So we have one person that eats everything. He doesn't care what he eats. The other person eats only vegetable, and Paul here calls him weak. Both are Gentiles, former pagans, and as you know, pagans worshipped many gods, and these many gods were represented by many idols. Therefore, the meat that they are avoiding must have something to do with idols. It's not for any health reasons, or they're not abstaining for a diet. It has to do with a religious reason. That's why they will not eat the meat. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, he explains it further. He says, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. That's the key, their conscience being weak. You see, in Corinth, as well as Rome, the pagans were polytheistic. We know that means many gods, but they also believed in evil spirits, and they feared that these evil spirits had the capacity to attach themselves to food, and then when you ate the food, the evil spirit came inside of you. So in order to cleanse the food or meat, they would first offer it to a god or an idol. They would burn it, and whatever was left over was sold to the people at the marketplace. Thus we have the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. So do you see a potential problem here? Back in Romans 14, in verse 3, Paul puts it this way. He said, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So there it is. The one who eats despises or looks down upon who thinks little of the one who doesn't eat. And the one who doesn't eat harshly judges the one who does eat. So one thing is clear. There's a lot of despising and a lot of judging going on, but not much love going on. Amen? So that's the Gentile versus Gentile conflict. So now, on to the Jewish conflict. It's very similar. In verse 5 of Romans 14, Paul says, One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And this has to do with the Sabbath and the other holy days and festivals in Colossians 2 that Alice read so well this morning. And in the reading, we know that these Sabbaths and high holy days and festivals all pointed to one thing, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And since those things were fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no more need for them. So we need to understand, in this context, the Jewish believers, the weak Jewish believers, had faith, but they felt bound to observe these holy days, while the others viewed every day as the same. Thus, the weak judged the others, and the others despised the weak. Again, no love here, just a lot of despising and judging going on. But although both camps are on opposite sides of the spectrum, there are similarities between the strong and the weak. What do all have in common? Well, look again in Romans 14. In verse 3, Paul says that God has welcomed him, who? The one who eats the meat. So God has welcomed the strong. In verse 4, he says, he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's the strong person. In verse 6, Paul says, the one who observes the day, which is the weak person, observes it in honor of the Lord. 
And the one who eats, the strong person, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, the weak, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what do they have in common? The strong and the weak, according to Paul, are both saved sinners. They're both saved sinners. The person that's not eating is doing it to honor the Lord. The person that is eating is doing it to honor the Lord. The person that is not observing the holy days is observing it in honor to the Lord. And the person who is, is doing it unto the Lord. So let's take a step back for a minute. Even though Paul labels the abstainers from food and the observers of holy days as weak in faith, and obviously, if we're honest, none of us wants to be known as weak in faith, amen? I'm sure if we're honest with ourselves that we can identify in some way with the weak. I know I can. And another thing, let me be clear that the subject of eating is way more important than the subjects that I'm going to bring up, like music and entertainment. I mean, those are like first world problems. We don't need to watch Netflix, but we need to eat. So it's not going to be a one-to-one -one comparison. Food is essential for life. Music is only essential for one thing, and that's the worship of the Lord. All other uses, although not sinful, are not essential, but they're secondary in importance. So in the biblical example, which is the meat, which is necessary, which most likely was a sacrifice to an idol, and unless you're worried about going next door and having some halal meat, there won't be a one-to-one -one comparison. So again, I get that it's not equal, but I'm just going to have us ponder some scenarios in a moment. And to be clear, before moving on, I got one more warning. I'm going to suggest some very absurd examples for us to think through, but I think they'll be helpful in fleshing out what we want to get at this morning. I want to get us really thinking about these things and maybe have a little fun in the process. So with that in mind, let's explore a little bit. So perhaps in your case, there might be a certain type of music, a genre, an album, or a song. And maybe that album or song brings you back to a time you'd rather forget to a time in your life where you were without hope, without the Lord Jesus Christ. And to you, that music is a dark reminder of that time. Perhaps it might tempt you to miss that old life. Either way, in the present day, you refuse to listen to that stuff. You say, get that junk away from me. Okay, fair enough. I think we can all agree that that's possible. So let's take the scenario one absurd step further. Say one Sunday you're in need of a lift to church, so a brother or sister kindly offers to swing by your house and pick you up. So they arrive, and you get in the car, and after exchanging the usual pleasantries, good morning, thank you very much, he or she turns on the car radio, and to your honor and dismay, you see it on the screen, that very album that you can't stand, ABBA's Greatest Hits. <laughs> oh, you can dance. You can jive. Having the time of your life, that's right, you're driving with the dancing queen baby and you can't get out. <laughs> so what happens to your opinion of that brother or sister? They're listening to that album. Provided you don't jump out of the car immediately, does your opinion of them change? Be honest. What's going through your mind? Oh, they're so worldly. Oh, they've compromised. They live carnally. They aren't serious about the things of God. They're definitely in sin. Maybe they're not even saved. You associate that song with your past life of sin and rebellion, but they're just bopping along unaware of the spiritual danger they're in. Well, maybe you don't say anything then and there, or maybe you do say something, but 
You begin to judge them, don't you? Then you tell someone else, and the gossip begins. Then you post something about it on social media, and we're off to the races. But you be sure to keep it vague. You talk about them without really talking about them, if you understand what I mean. So hold on to that in your mind. And if that scenario wasn't crazy enough, let's reverse the situation for a second. You're still catching a ride to church, and a brother or sister was kind enough to swing by your house to pick you up. When you get in the car and you sit down after exchanging the usual pleasantries, good morning, thank you, you notice there's no radio at all. Instead, there's a gaping hole in the dashboard where the radio used to be, just a bunch of wires hanging out flopping in the wind. Now, this being New York, you assume it was stolen. <laughs> so you ask them, and they say, stolen? No, no. I ripped that evil tool of Satan out as soon as I got saved. I got rid of my television, too. Because everyone knows no Christian that's a true Christian ever watches TV. Don't you know the media has been taken over by the secularized, liberalized, demonized, antichrist system? Don't you know that demons also come through the TV into the airways to those of us if we watch or listen? I ripped the radio out, smashed it, buried it in my backyard, and I put a cross on top of it just to be sure nothing come out of it again. After all, everyone knows that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Does your opinion of that brother or sister change, provided you don't jump out of the car immediately? What goes through your mind? They're so superstitious. They're so legalistic. Wow, they're ignorant. They can't be useful in my church. They'll never be effective in reaching the world with the gospel. And if they think that going through all those lengths is going to make God impressed, maybe they're not even saved. They just go on talking on and on, unaware of the massive theological holes in their arguments. So maybe you don't say anything then and there, or maybe you do, but you begin to despise them, don't you? You look down on them. Then you tell someone else, and the gossip begins. Then throw social media into the mix, and we're off to the races again but you'd be sure to keep it vague. You talk about them without really talking about them, if you understand my drift. So, that was funny, right? But ask yourself honestly this morning, who are you in these two scenarios? I know they're extreme, I know the caricatures, they're not real, but who are you in the two scenarios? Do you recognize yourself? Whom do you more identify with? Are you the one listening to the secular music? Or are you the one paralyzed by the secular music? Are you the one who buried the radio out in your backyard? Or are you the one who's free to watch and listen with discernment? Like it or not, if you were paralyzed by the choice of music, or if you buried your radio, you are, according to the scripture, the weaker brother. Now before I take another step, let me explain something. Being a musician myself, I understand that not all music is created equal. In other words, there are some songs that were designed to tear down the biblical worldview and mock God. Take John Lennon's Imagine, for example. It's a beautiful song, beautiful tune. Do you ever look at the lyrics? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only. No God up there. Imagine all the people living for today. No countries, no religion. There's no mistaking the agenda there. He wasn't shy in his agenda. 
So discernment is necessary in making a God-honoring, soul-benefiting uh, choice of entertainment. That's, uh, that's a given this morning. Now keep that in mind, and let me further clarify my argument. I was clear not to say that after using discernment, if you determine not to listen to music like that song, that you're weak. No. I said if you were paralyzed by the music, if it caused you to harshly judge your brother, then you're weak. And likewise, with the radio example, you didn't bypass the radio because you used discernment. You buried the radio out of fear of it. And then you judged your brother for not doing the same thing. If that's you, then you're weak. But take heart, brothers and sisters. Paul doesn't condemn you, and nor do I. I see a lot of myself in that. But Paul himself makes this distinction between strong and weak believers. But lest you think I'm being one-sided, my admonishments will also be directed at the strong, and those admonishments may surprise you. But let's look at Paul's reasoning in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 a little further, and let's discover why he considers the strong the strong. So back in Romans 14, if you jump down to verse 14, Paul says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Then in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. See, there's nothing unclean in and of itself. There are no other gods and there are no true idols. The strong in faith are the ones who know this. Back in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So there's more proof that food is just food. And any Jewish believers still clinging to kosher dietary laws don't understand that Jesus made all foods clean. And the superstitious Gentiles need to know this as well. There is no such thing as idols. In Mark 7, 18 to 19, Jesus said to them, then are you still also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared, all food's clean. And what about Peter when he saw his vision in Acts 10, 15? And the voice came to Peter again a second time, saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so back to Paul, as he continues in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge, not all possess it, but some through their former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And there you have it. Now, if this causes you to stumble, your conscience is weak. If you actually believe, and you can fill in the blank, whatever is intrinsically evil, your faith is weak. If the radio playing ABBA in your car paralyzes you, then you're weak. If you're unsure, let's, let's dive into this a little further. Okay, you're at work, and you go into the break room, and you're really hungry, and you forgot your lunch. And you see on the table there's some leftover cake. You know where I'm going with this. So you go over to the cake, and there's no one else there. There's no cameras in there. And you go down to, to take a piece of the cake, and you see the, the remnants of an inscription. Congratulations to Adam and Steve. And no one's around. So you're not worried about a witness. You're alone, and you're so hungry. Can you cut a piece and eat it privately? It's just cake, right? How about this? 
back to my introduction regarding that sweet young boy that I used to teach guitar to, what if there's leftover Halloween candy somewhere? And I'm not speaking of whether your children did or did not trick-or-treat. Let's say for the sake of argument, you don't have any kids. But you know that this candy, wherever it is, is leftover from Halloween. And you're hungry. And forget about the benefits of eating candy. Just pretend that it's okay to eat candy. A lot of pretending today. No one's around to see you. It's just candy. Can you eat it? Can you eat your Snickers bar? Everyone's answering yes. But if you answered no, according to Paul, I'm sorry, but you're weak. And so here's what the breakdown might look like in other areas. Again, you have food and then you have literature. Except if the literature is the Bible, it's not that important. But the strong person can read or watch or listen to things with discernment. He or she can choose not to listen to or to read things that do not benefit them spiritually. They prioritize reading the word of God first. Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when they choose entertainment, they take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ when they view or watch something. But the weak... To the weak, all entertainment is satanic and causes spiritual harm. It's to be avoided at all costs. You're unable to bear it. And we view anyone who does not share the same conviction as unspiritual or unholy, and we harshly judge them. Now, here's a controversial one, so I'm going to tread very lightly. The subject of alcohol. Now, I do not drink alcohol. But a strong person chooses whether or not to drink it, does not get drunk because he knows that's a sin, He's aware of the possible dangers that alcohol does cause, and if he has a history of alcohol abuse, he abstains from any situation that may cause him to stumble with discernment. That's the strong person. The weak person, alcohol in and of itself is inherently evil and sinful. According to them, in the Bible, alcohol wasn't really alcohol, but it was. Is unable to drink under any circumstances, not because of a past history with alcohol abuse, that's understandable, but due to an irrational fear of it. Views anyone who does not share the same conviction as unspiritual or unholy. You see where we're going with this. What about holidays or holy days? The strong person either observes willingly and not under compulsion, or abstains willingly, knows all days are alike. What about the weak person? He or she either observes under compulsion or fear or abstains for fear of compulsion, superstition, views anyone who does not share the same conviction as unscriptural, unspiritual, and unholy. All right. If you find yourself weak in conscience and faith after the points I've made, and especially if you're angry right now, if you're coming to the realization that you may in fact be weak in some of these areas, please hear me. There is no condemnation coming from me that is not my intent this morning. The goal was to make us all aware of where we stand at this moment on these important issues. But if you discover that you are weak, then Paul basically says to you, do not pass judgment on those who partake in things that you deem unclean. Do not pass judgment on those that partake in things that you deem unclean. Look back in Romans 14. In verse 4, Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another, and that another is Christ. <laughs> it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So that being said, unless you think that I am promoting anything goes lifestyle, I am not, I'm saying that just 
I'm saying that just love, don't judge your brother, is not enough. We need to understand that there are times when we need to judge, and there are times when we need to understand that people have their own opinions. Everything I'm speaking about today is meant to be funny. It's meant to be extreme. Because I'm speaking about opinions on matters of Christian liberty and Christian conscience. I'm not speaking about gross sin or gross doctrinal error. I'm not saying, well, someone decides, well, I can watch pornography because it's not unclean. No, it is unclean. There are matters of black and white. So that's the last thing as I'm saying is say, just to each his own. There are times when we need to confront a brother or sister when they're in sin. The problem is, all too often, the weakened faith confuse the two things. And if that's you, don't worry. Because on these matters of liberty and conscience, I'm going to address the strong in a little bit. And I'm basically going to tell them to stop doing the things that I just told the weak that they're allowed to do. Let me say it again. I'm going to tell the strong to stop doing the very things that I just told the weak that the strong are allowed to do. Why? Because that's what Paul says. And that's the loving way. We need to prefer one another. So let me be clear on the issue of judging sin. If you actually see a brother or sister committing a sin with your own two eyes, or if they tell you that they're doing it, or if you notice it, and you have a chapter and verse, then by all means, please judge them. As an elder, I beg you to judge them. Go to them. Go to them with the Bible. Go to them privately. Even if their sin was public, talk to them privately first and give them the opportunity to repent. Go, not because you think you know everything, but go because you love them. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And oh, I've been wounded by friends. Thank goodness for that. For God's glory, for their benefit, for the good of the church, by all means, number one, make a judgment. Number two, take your Bible. Number three, go in love. But remember our topic. Only go in the cases of actual sin and doctrinal error. What's doctrinal error? Well, Christ isn't God. Well, salvation is, can be without Jesus. Oh, you work your way to heaven. Those are doctrinal errors. Not your opinions about the color of the rug. Not your suspicion. They must be sinning because of, not because you have a gut feeling about that person. Use chapter and verse. And once again, go in love. Now, that admonition was to the weak. But before addressing the strong, let me pause and make this overarching statement for everyone. You see, the problem this morning not lies, lies not in whether you are strong or weak, or a mixture of the two, which is, both, which is all of us pretty much, but with the way in which you treat the one with whom you disagree. Remember the two car radio scenarios? They were extreme. They were ridiculous. Both the weak and the strong were the villains in the story, by the way. They either despise the other or they harshly judged the other. That's my point. That was the Apostle Paul's point. Do we understand that? Okay, now I'm going to address the strong, so hold on to your pews. And there are no pews here, and if there were pews, it'd be a more holy building. If I say that, then I'm weak. <laughs> it is. This is to those of you who know. In 1 Corinthians 8, Verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Back in your Bible, Romans 14, verse 3, Paul says, Let, let not the one who eats, the strong, 
despise the one who abstains, the weak. In verse 6, he says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. You see, Paul warns those who know to not judge the motives of the weak. He's observing the day to honor God and not eating meat sacrificed to idols in order to what? To honor God. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look down at verse 13. Paul says, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Down in verse 15, he says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And I'll add, even if you're right. Even if they're ignorant. Even if they're superstitious. You are not walking in love if you despise them. What does Jesus command you? To love one another. Down in verse 20 and 21, Paul writes, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So I ask you, are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Romans 15, verse 1, Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Yes, he admits it's their failings. Yes, they're weak. Yes, they're wrong. But we have an obligation to them. Why? Because we know the truth. We know. We are to walk carefully around them. If you know someone struggles with alcohol or does not want to see it, you don't pull out a bud and drink it. Yes, we are to be courteous. We are to be kind. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I like how he puts it. This right of yours. <laughs> yeah, you have the right, but don't make it be a stumbling block to someone that may stumble by it. So which is more important? Your rights or your brother's conscience? What's more important to you? 1 Corinthians 8, verses 10 to 12, Paul continues. He says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? There it is. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. There it is. Remember, loving our brothers and sisters is evidence of loving Christ. Sinning against our brothers and sisters is the same as sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is Paul's resolution? He has in 1 Corinthians 8.13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. The New American Standard puts it, I will never eat meat again if it makes my brother stumble. That's powerful. Yes, you're allowed to, but if you know your brother is wounded by it, you're not to do it. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says he has a right, like Peter, to get married, to eat and drink, to work, to get paid as a missionary pastor, but he chooses not to, even though he was free to do so. And he goes out of his way to say, I am free to do so, but I won't for your sake. What does he do? He made himself a slave to all for the sake of the gospel. 
the gospel, which according to Paul is of first importance. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, the apostle Paul, the greatest Christian that ever lived, gave up his rights for the sake of the gospel. But infinitely more than Paul, Jesus Christ gave up his rights for the sake of the gospel. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. To those here who do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior, who heard me talk about idols and radios and Abba and stumbling blocks, strong and weak in love and hate, let me tell you, you're neither strong nor weak. According to the Bible, you're dead. You're spiritually dead. The strong and the weak alike have been born again. They're just being directed this morning on how to love each other better, how to love Jesus better. Jesus loved them strong and weak alike. He loved and died for them on the cross, paying for their sins in full, satisfying the wrath of God that they deserved, that they earned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yes, Jesus did it all. He, although he is God, came to earth, lived a sinless life, went to the cross as the only perfect acceptable sacrifice that God his Father would accept on our behalf, and he did accept it. And he showed that by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven, where now at this very moment he sits at his Father's right hand, interceding for his people those that are believing in him, both the strong and the weak. Do you believe that he lived and died for you? Will you trust in him today for salvation and be saved from God's wrath? And you can't earn forgiveness by religion or by righteous acts or even by loving your neighbor. That's not the way it works. It's all of Christ's work on your behalf. That's the only way. So I ask, will you run to him today? Will you repent? Will you turn away from your sins? and your righteous acts, and will you bow before his feet? So please think on that and pray as I draw this message to a close this morning. Then after the, service, uh, after the service, seek one of us. Ask for guidance on how you can know Christ, and you'll discover what true faith and repentance looks like in a life transformed by the gospel. But above all else, run to Christ. Run to him. Run to him. Now back to the members of LBC. Brothers and sisters, I said a lot this morning, very quickly, in a little bit of amount of time, and I didn't take it lightly. So in summary, this is just summary, there are 10 points I made. Number one, we love God because he first loved us in Christ. Number two, we can't love God if we don't love our brothers and sisters. Number three, we sin against God by sinning against our brothers and sisters. Number four, we are commanded by Christ to love our brothers and sisters. Number five, the world will know that we are Christians if they see us love one another. Number six, loving includes many things like hospitality, supplying each other's needs, praying for each other, mourning and rejoicing with each other, encouraging and admonishing one another, and preferring one another. Number seven, because we're sinners, getting along and loving each other is difficult sometimes. Number eight, there exists in the body of Christ both strong and weak believers alike. Number nine, the strong know they have liberty. The weak stumble easily in matters of conscience and liberty, but this tempts the strong to despise the weak and it tempts the weak to judge the strong. Number 10, both are failing to love each other, and herein lies our problem. 
But Paul assumes that both camps are Christians, and the Lord commands all Christians to love each other. Therefore, the Apostle John says, if we don't love our brothers and sisters, we can't love God. And that's where the preaching of the word comes in, each and every Sunday. That's where the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, comes in. So this morning, I preached the word to you and to myself, and we are now aware of the issue. We have the information, we have the doctrine. Now, lastly, we need to apply the doctrine to our lives. It's the Holy Spirit who now needs to work in us and to enable us to hear, to accept, to obey, and to follow points of application. So in application, I have three points for the strong and three points for the weak. First, to the strong. Point number one, do not flaunt your matters of liberty in matters of conscience in front of those you know who will be grieved by it, even and especially on social media. Do not flaunt your liberty in matters of conscience in front of those you know will be grieved by it, even and especially on social media. Amen. Number two, if you cannot enjoy your rights without the weak taking notice and stumbling, you are to prefer them and stop the activity altogether. If you cannot enjoy your rights without the weak taking notice and stumbling, you are to prefer them and stop the activity altogether. And number three, you can gently, lovingly, with the Bible in hand, come alongside a weaker brother or sister and explain to them that what you are doing is considered liberty and that they have the same liberty themselves in Christ. That the activity in and of itself is not sinful and that the word of God does not condemn it as such. However, if they will not listen to you, you must accept it and welcome them. You may not despise them, you may not exclude them, you may not ostracize them, you may not gossip about them. You must prefer them, you must love them. And now, three points to the week. Point number one, if a stronger, more mature brother does come alongside you, and in love for your good, opens the word of God and attempts to demonstrate from the word of God that your problem with others' behavior is unfounded or superstitious, keep an open mind. Be a Berean. Search the Bible for yourselves and see if what they're saying is true. And if it is true, and if you see that it is true, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you grace to change your conviction. We know idols aren't real. We know every day is the same. We know people have different tastes in music, in dress, in worship style, in cars, houses, entertainment. Remember, you are not their master. Jesus Christ is, and they will have to answer to him in their matters of liberty. Number two, if you absolutely cannot get past your convictions, then to the glory of God, keep them. Keep them according to the glory of God. Never act in contrary to your conscience or train yourself to ignore your convictions. It's not good to do that. So if you're convinced that your convictions are accurate, keep them to the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 14, 14, nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. That's where the title comes from. Sometimes there can be sometimes relative sins. Murder is not a relative sin. The music you listen to might be. If it's causing you to stumble and sin, and you do it anyway because you want to be strong, you're sinning against your conscience. In verse 23, Paul says, Whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, point number three. If that's the case, 
and you cannot get past your convictions and you resolve to keep them, do not harshly judge the one engaging in this activity that you yourself are abstaining from. Do not gossip about them. You may tell them your concerns, but at the end of the day, do not think evil about them. Be persuaded of better things, things that belong to salvation, Hebrews 6, 9. Well, I've said a lot today, very fast, in a short amount of time. Let me close the message with one final admonition from the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, and I say to both the strong and the weak, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and your word. I thank you for the laughs that we had. I thank you for the joy. I thank you for causing us to think and be convicted. I pray again, if anything I said is not in accordance with your will and is my mere opinion, that you would have people quickly forget it. I pray that anything that is in accordance with your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint it, that it would touch the hearts of the people, and they would turn around and implement it. I pray in all things, whether we abstain or whether we engage, I pray that it would all be done to your glory. May we live for your glory. May the rights that we have in Christ not supersede our love for our brothers and sisters. I pray, O oh God, that we can enjoy Christian liberty, but not at the expense of grieving someone else. I pray that we may not uh, lift up our rights above the worship of you. I pray that we may worship you first and foremost. We may hold the gospel as first importance. Please enable us to do this as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.